Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you so much for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today on our weekly roundtable with the backdrop of militant and ongoing protests by teachers across Mexico, Mexico's President Enrique Peña Nieto is meeting with President Obama, who arrived in Mexico on Thursday. The agenda is bound to include U.S. treatment of Mexican migrants, immigration reform, guns flowing from the U.S into Mexico and trade. How will U.S. economic interests and Pina Nieto's vulnerabilities impact the talks? The hunger strike of prisoners at Guantanamo has forced President Obama to once again renew his efforts to close the prison. Meanwhile, prisoners are being kept alive by being force-fed against a declaration by the World Medical Association that opposes it. What has kept the president from closing Guantanamo? Can he honestly continue to blame Congress? And the president is under fire for his latest cabinet appointment, a billionaire heir to the Hyatt Hotel fortune as Commerce Secretary. Meanwhile, his labor nominee is having a hard time getting GOP support in the Senate, and a number of non-cabinet appointments are blocked. What's going on? Panelists are Jackie Goldberg, Tom Hayden, Dr. Gerald Horn. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted, women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. U.S. employers added 165,000 jobs in April. The Labor Department also said revised figures showed hiring was stronger in the previous two months than first thought. The gains trimmed the official unemployment rate to a four-year low of 7.5 percent. Still, the Bureau of Labor Statistics said the jobs picture overall was little change from the month before. The official unemployment rate for African Americans was 13.2 percent, nearly twice that of whites, at 6.7 percent. The jobless rate for Latinos was 9 percent, 5.1 percent for Asians. Syria's main opposition group is accusing President Bashar al-Assad's regime of committing a large-scale massacre in a Sunni village near the Mediterranean coast. The pro-opposition, British-based Syrian Observatory for Human Rights said troops killed at least 50 people and perhaps as many as 100, including women and children, and torched homes in the village. Syrian state media did not report on the alleged events. In Washington, Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel became the first top Obama administration official publicly to acknowledge the administration is contemplating arming the Syrian rebels. Arming the rebels, that's an option. That's an option. Uh, I think Secretary Hammond framed it rather clearly uh, when he talked about what is the objective for both our countries, certainly the United States, stopping the violence, uh, stability uh, in the region, and a transitioning, helping be part of that, transitioning Syria to a democracy. 
United Nations Chief Ban Ki-moon said he discussed with ambassadors from the U.S., Britain, France, Russia and China possible diplomatic moves to end the Syrian civil war. U.N. diplomats said mediator locked up Rahimi was determined to quit. Rahimi was said to be frustrated with the international deadlock over how to end Syria's two-year-long civil war, which the U.N. says has killed 70,000. Rahimi's predecessor, Kofi Annan, also resigned. The finance minister of Bangladesh is downplaying the impact of last week's devastating garment factory building collapse on the country's garment industry. Abul Mal Abdul Muhith said he didn't think it was really serious. His comments came hours after the 500th body was pulled from the debris. The International Labor Organization is urging Bangladesh to take immediate actions to prevent future workplace disasters. Top ILO official Gilbert Wangbo is meeting with Bangladeshi government officials. He spoke to Al Jazeera English. It's clear that this, uh, um, this uh, tragedy could have been uh, easily um, avoided. Um, especially after what we saw in uh, November uh, 24 with the fire um, tragedy that caused also 100 lives. So we need to see the, the action that one has to put together to make sure that we, uh, the risk is uh, kept to the lowest level possible. The April 24th building collapse is the deadliest garment factory accident in world history. The Bangladesh garment industry is the country's biggest source of export income. As many as 100 are feared dead after a gold mine collapsed in Sudan's Darfur region. A member of parliament from the area said the mine collapsed on Monday. Word only reached the capital Khartoum yesterday. Fresh off its huge victory in defeating congressional gun control legislation, the National Rifle Association is holding its annual convention in Houston, Texas. More than 70,000 people are expected to attend the three-day convention, whose theme is Stand and Fight. NRA President David Keene told the Houston Fox TV station that more Americans are agreeing with the NRA every day. We've been, uh, we've been relatively successful thus far. Uh, this is an ongoing war over the Second Amendment and what it means and what rights Americans will have. But we're pleased with the fact that as time has gone on, people have really looked at what's being proposed and more of them are agreeing with us every day. The NRA convention includes a gun trade show, political rally and strategy meeting. Several state and national conservative leaders will speak to the NRA. They include Texas Governor Rick Perry, former Republican vice presidential nominee Sarah Palin, former Pennsylvania senator and presidential candidate Rick Santorum, and Republican Senator Ted Cruz of Texas. He has become one of the top Tea Party voices in Washington since being elected last year. A wildfire raging in a coastal region of California's Ventura County is only about 10 percent contained. The fire was driven by strong winds yesterday and cut a 10-mile path to the Pacific. Some 2,000 homes were threatened. I'm Eileen Alfandari. You're listening to Sojourner Truth on Pacifica Radio. This is Margaret Prescott, and it is our weekly roundtable. I would like to welcome our panelists who will stay with us for the hour. Jackie Goldberg has served on the California State Assembly, the Los Angeles City Council, and is president of the Los Angeles School Board. She is now a faculty advisor at the UCLA Graduate School of Education and Information Studies. Jackie Goldberg, welcome. 
nice to be with you, as always. And uh, Tom Hayden, director of the Peace and Justice Resource Center. He's a founding member of Students for a Democratic Society. He has served in the California State Assembly as well as the State Senate. He's a, a leading voice in ending the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the occupation of both. And The Nation magazine recently named him one of the 50 greatest progressives of the 20th century. He's taught at a number of colleges and universities in Southern California, author or editor of at least 18 books, including his latest inspiring participatory democracy student movements from Port Huron to today. He writes regularly for The Nation magazine. His work has appeared in The New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Boston Globe, and more. Tom Hayden, thank you for joining us. Thank you, and good morning. Dr. Gerald Horn holds the Moore's Chair of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. His research has addressed issues of racism in a variety of relations involving labor, politics, civil rights, international relations, and war. He's the author of about 34 books or so. And Dr. Horn, I saw a notice recently that you a few more of the books you've been working on will be coming out shortly. Um, any update you want to give us on that? Well, yes, The Negro Comrades of the Crown Book will be in paperback in a few weeks, and the latest book from the University of Illinois Press is Black Revolutionary, William Patterson and the Globalization of the African-American Freedom Struggle. Right. Okay. Well, thank you for that, Dr. Horn. We look forward to those, and we look forward to you returning to Southern California as well. Now, we are going to start out with a discussion on um, President Obama's trip to Mexico. Earlier, um, just yesterday, the president traveled uh, to Mexico, and we're going to go to a clip uh, on that trip. He traveled to Mexico to meet with his counterpart, President Enrique Pina Nieto, Thursday, issues of trade, so-named border security, drug violence, guns flowing across the border into Mexico, access of U.S. law enforcement in Mexican territory, and the potential effects of a comprehensive immigration reform would have on both countries are, it is reported, center stage in discussions. And with an estimated $500 billion exchange with Mexico yearly, President Obama hopes to strengthen even further economic ties with Mexico, further pushing the tr free trade agenda started by NAFTA over 20 years ago. Recently, it's been reported that multinational corporations are leaving China, actually, as wage levels rise there and are returning to Mexico. And with the backdrop of the building collapse in Bangladesh, highlighting the race to the bottom as U.S. and other multinational corporations do business in countries with the lowest wages and with the fewest worker and um, um, worker environmental and other protections, it remains to be seen what it actually means for workers in Mexico. President Obama has also vowed to give $1.9 billion in aid to Mexico, which will further militarize the country. The aid package will include involving the U.S. in training police as well as equipment, and Pina Nieto has not only kept troops on the ground in Mexico, but he has centralized security to the Interior Ministry in line with his party's history of centralized power and closed-door bureaucracy. President Obama will then continue on to call 
Costa Rica for a summit of Central American leaders. Let us go, uh, starting out our discussion, to a clip of from Al Jazeera about the president's trip in Mexico. U.S. President Barack Obama came to Mexico to focus on deepening economic ties, but he drew attention by acknowledging a changing security relationship between the United States and its southern neighbor. Barack Obama. In the days preceding the visit, reports emerged that Mexico has begun to restrict the wide-ranging access U.S. law enforcement authorities have had in the country. Before arriving, Obama said he would withhold judgment on the changes until he spoke with Mexico's president. This is what he had to say after their meeting. I agreed to continue our close cooperation on security, even as the nature of that cooperation will evolve. As I told the president, it is obviously up to the Mexican people to determine their security structures and how it engages with other nations, including the United States. Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto said the security restrictions shouldn't impact overall cooperation in the U.S.-backed war on criminal groups. He also made a point of highlighting the mutual economic opportunities increased trade offers both countries. 40% of Mexican exports supplies come from the U.S., which leads us to conclude the following. When Mexico has higher economic growth, the ability to export more, this also has an impact and aids the development of the United States. Although both leaders are looking to focus more on economic issues and deeper trade relations, the fact remains that Mexico is still an extremely violent country. More than a thousand people are killed every month, mostly in drug-related violence, and there are large parts of the country where police and journalists cannot operate freely and openly. Human rights advocates say the leaders missed an opportunity in their talks. Neither Obama nor Peña Nieto today once mentioned the enormous cost in, in human rights terms of the strategy in the war on drugs. 70,000 people killed, 26,000 people disappeared, thousands more tortured. They also discussed immigration. It's a sensitive issue for both countries. Obama is trying to push through comprehensive immigration overhaul in the U.S. to offer 11 million illegal immigrants, most of them Mexicans, some path to legal status. But Obama is known by many here in Mexico for his administration's record number of deportations, almost 400,000 a year. A protest outside the U.S. Embassy in Mexico City attracted people looking for a change in U.S. immigration policy. Before leaving Mexico on Friday, Obama will meet with students and entrepreneurs in an effort to focus his trip yet again on economic opportunities for the future. Right. And uh, next, we are just going to hear a very um, short uh, clip. It's actually from a discussion about Bangladesh, but we highlighted uh, the piece talking about corporate and government responsibility to workers in the global market. The consumer has to make sure that this doesn't happen again. And the way to do it is that the people in the Western world force their governments to have the same regulations and laws applied to those companies and factories in the developing countries who are manufacturing goods for our consumption. Right. And Tom Hayden, um, uh, starting with you and picking up also on that last point, you know, this business about the, the race to the bottom and businesses uh, actually leaving China because wage levels are higher and, and going to places like Mexico, one really has to wonder 
how much is going to be discussed between the president and Pina Nieto about that. I mean, there's a lot of focus on economic uh, policy. There's also a lot of um, focus on the so-called single door policy, which will limit the U.S. government's previous, you know, previous ability um, to operate U.S. law enforcement to operate more freely within Mexico. But Tom Hayden, what jumps out at you about this trip? Well, there's a lot of uh, uh, mystery and secrecy about it. It's it's astonishing how uh, little is known about what's being agreed, if if anything. But um, with respect to uh, uh, to Bangladesh and labor standards, uh, it points up the need for uh, the, the AFL-CIO and uh, human rights activists to to uh, still demand. Um, an extension of the uh, New Deal labor policies uh, to, to uh, our foreign policy instead of privatization and corporate globalization. That's that's for sure. Um, Bangladesh has illustrated uh, what the, the race to the bottom does. It leads to hell. There's 500 young women have been burned alive and crushed in in uh, Bangladesh, and and it, it it's because of the absence of the standards. We have legally enforceable standards to protect corporate capital, uh, but no such standards to protect uh, uh, labor. Uh, with respect to Mexico, I think um, you know it, it's it's uh, again it's quite startling what isn't said, but. The papers are reporting that uh, the U.S. side wants to uh, uh, open some space for uh, uh, private capital for the oil companies in the Mexico energy sector, uh, which is the complete opposite of the uh, policy of Roosevelt in 1937, uh, which allowed for Mexico nationalizing its uh, oil resources uh, Roosevelt allowed that over the fierce objections of uh, the oil industry. With respect to uh, drug policy, uh, there's a sharp difference. Uh, the, uh, the papers are reporting that the, uh, the, the U.S. side, the DEA, uh, is very, very upset that uh, Mexico wants to remain sovereign, to take sovereign control of, of its uh, internal uh, security matters. Uh, uh, because the DEA has wanted to militarize the policy and get its get its uh, uh, operatives as well as CIA operatives and trainers uh, and uh, and drones uh, into the war on drugs uh, in Mexico. There's been a strong backlash from the Mexican public, very strong, and uh, Mexico, I think, is is resisting uh, the uh, penetration by the U.S. military. Yeah, and Jackie Goldberg, I mean, here you have Pina Nieto, a controversial president. I mean, at the time of his election, there was a huge um, scandal about buying votes that was actually proven and a lot of challenges to his uh, legitimacy. And in contrast, you see what's going on in Venezuela, um, where the United States is still hedging on whether or not to recognize the election, the presidential election that happened there, where Nicolás 
Nicolas Maduro won by a narrow margin. And Pina Nieto uh, does seem to be the candidate backed by the 1%. But, you know, uh, given all of that, he does have some vulnerabilities. And teachers have been pretty militant. They've been striking all over uh, Mexico uh, protesting the policies of Pina Nieto. And one has to wonder um, how these vulnerabilities, if they will have any play at all in the discussion that happens with President Obama or the deals that they are about to make, including a much publicized energy agreement that Reuters is reporting would remove obstacles to expanding deep water drilling for oil in the Gulf of Mexico. But are all these things like whether or not he bought the election <laughs> and other the problems with teachers, et cetera, just set aside and have nothing to do with getting down to the business of security and um, the economy, economic deals. Jackie Goldberg. Is that all you want me to comment on? (laughs) (laughs) Well, what jumps out at you? Uh, Well, you know, uh, PRI is... Is is a is a it, it, it has in its own name an institutionalized revolutionary party. That is to say, uh, it has long been the uh, the the national ruling party, and it lost for a while with uh, Calderon, but now it's back in power. And I think uh, you're going to see some changes. I think one of the things that's happening that's very interesting is this new attack on the uh, teachers' union, which had been basically untouchable by the government because it had so much support and it was so powerful. Uh, But uh, he had, I think in in February or March of this year, uh, Gordillo, who is the president, who was thought to be untouchable, uh, was arrested by the government. Uh, And I think that that is a beginning of a change. I think what, because Pre used to be a very strong supporter of that that teachers' union, but now they're trying to... um, to change the teachers' union's power to uh, to decide who gets to teach, which is basically like uh, attorneys who decide by the bar association who gets to be an attorney, and they want more now the government to decide salaries, dismissals, and so forth. And you're going to see some big strife over that uh, because uh, the um, uh, teachers' union has been a very important part of the pre-organization, so there's kind of an obviously an internal fight going on. Um, you know, uh, academic performance, guess what, is the lowest in Mexico in the poorest parts of the country, Guerrero, Oaxaca, Michoacan. And, and, but on the other hand, uh, you know, the Oaxacan violence strife by teachers in 2006 uh, changed a great deal in, in that area. So this is going to be a very complicated time because uh, Peña Nieto wants to uh, reduce the violence. I believe he claims already that violence is down but from organized crime by 14% just in the first four months. Some people say the reason it's down is because they're no longer pursuing an uh, anti-organized crime policy. Um, it, this is a very uh, interesting time, I think, and I think the fact that, uh, that, uh, that work, uh, manufacturing work is coming back uh, from China is because the hourly wages in Mexico are 20% lower than the wages in China for by hour. If that's possible, I don't know how. Uh, ten years ago in Mexico, uh, wages were three times higher than China's wages. 
So there's a lot of moving parts to this, but I think that the relationship between Mexico and the United States is going to change under Peña Nieto because uh, he is definitely saying that the uh, the flow of illegal guns has got to stop, that, that uh, security uh, agencies... Uh, in 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 Mexico are going to decide policy about uh, about strategies in terms of uh, being against organized crime and that it's not going to be uh, an open flow of uh, of uh, U.S. Uh, uh, DEA agents any longer. So this is going to be a very complicated time, and I think this trip to Mexico, uh, I think this is the president's fourth. Uh, is is an indication of that complication. Right. Well, Jackie Goldberg, you see, that's why we love you, because you handled all of what I threw at you, (laughs) (laughs) despite your protestation. (laughs) Uh, Very cursorily, to say the very least. Right. Well, and uh, Dr. Gerald Horn, picking up um, from what uh, Jackie Goldberg has said, I mean, it's shocking about wages. And the report uh, out of China is that the difference uh, started out in wages with uh, China, China, I guess, an average worker in China uh, and the U.S. was something like $17 an hour. And that by 2015, that would go down to about $7 an hour. That is really quite some progress on the part of workers in in China. And the fact that you now have workers in Mexico earning less than they did in in China, one really has to uh, wonder what that means and what um, Pina Nieto and President Obama are up to as they're really uh, consolidating, you know, the $500 exchange with Mexico yearly and increasing that, the economic ties with the country and what it means for workers' rights. Dr. Gerald Horn, your views, what jumps out at you on this trip? Well, you correctly framed this visit through the prism of both economics and China. And I say that in part because with regard to the drug war, the Colombians increasingly are transshipping through cash-strapped Caribbean countries, such as Jamaica, for example, precisely because the heat is on in Mexico. And with regard to the migration question, the Mexican economy is growing at a much faster clip than the United States economy, which gives Mexican workers an incentive to stay at home. And then, of course, there's the Obama deportation policy, which is a disincentive to cross the border. So this trip, in many ways, is all about China, as you correctly note. And even though China might not come up in the discussions between the two presidents, what will come up is the Trans-Pacific Partnership that includes Mexico and excludes China, and it's sort of a free trade agreement between the uh, countries abutting the Pacific Ocean, which is one way the United States is trying to outflank China. And then you may recall at the State of the Union address just a few months ago, uh, Mr. Obama announced this transatlantic free trade area, which is another way to sort of outflank China by basically having a de facto merger between the European economies and the U.S. economy. So the United States has this fear and this apprehension of being overtaken by China. But what may not come up at this discussion, but what we should focus on is that just as the United States is pivoting towards 
Asia and China, China is pivoting towards this hemisphere. We already know about its close relations with Cuba and Venezuela and Brazil. There was a fascinating article in the China Daily just a few days ago about the fact that Chinese interests are pouring billions into the Bahamas, just off the coast of southern Florida. It's an amazing development that I think we need to pay more attention to. Now, sadly, China is, in many ways, through its foreign policy, encouraging the development of an anti-Beijing alliance. It has territorial disputes with Japan and the Philippines and Vietnam. Uh, right now, uh, Chinese troops and Indian troops are staring each other eyeball to eyeball. A very worrisome development. But the bottom line is, is that Mexico, because of this hysteria about China, has more leverage in its dealings with the United States. And I trust and I hope that the Mexican leadership will use that leverage adroitly. Yeah, we're going to need to return to this discussion. We are going to need to move on to uh, what's happening with Guantanamo. But I would encourage our readers actually to go to a, there's a New York Times article that came out on May Day about retailers uh, retailers rethinking their role in Bangladesh. And one thing that jumped out at me is that Disney, of course, the world's largest licensor, you know, they are have said that they're going to pull out of uh, Bangladesh, going to phase out production. But they also said that they're going to have a year-long transitional period for its contractors to phase out production in Bangladesh, Pakistan, Belarus, Ecuador, and Venezuela. And one wonders how Ecuador and Venezuela got into it. And they also, the article also said that they're going to decide where they'll put their business uh, depending on the World Bank's governing indicators. So those countries that are up against the World Bank or refusing austerity measures imposed by the World Bank may be in some trouble in attracting the business of large corporations like Disney. It's, it's, it's very interesting to really look at the interrelationship of these multinational corporations and government policy. Um, we're we're going to just take a, a very short break and then we return Guantanamo. And the song feels like we only go backwards. The artist is Tame Impala. President Obama vowed earlier this week to make good on his so far unfulfilled promise made during the 2008 presidential race to close the Guantanamo Bay detention camp in Cuba. Detainees have been imprisoned at Guantanamo since 2002. The facility currently holds 166 detainees, despite more than half having been cleared for release. Controversy over the Guantanamo Bay detention camp has intensified as more than one hundred inmates are refusing food and four senior UN human rights experts and the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights have called for an end to the indefinite detention of Guantanamo's inmates and for their prosecution, transfer or immediate release. Currently, 23 detainees are being force-fed at least twice a day. Guards in riot gear tie each detainee to a chair or a bed and medical personnel 
shall force a tube up his nose and down his throat and pump a dietary supplement into his stomach. To keep up with demand, an additional 40 medical personnel just arrived at the base to help deal with the crisis. UN experts condemn the force feeding of hunger striking inmates. There are some who are saying this is torture and the UN declaration also condemned the policy of indefinite detention as a flagrant violation of international human rights law. 86 of the prisoners were cleared for transfer three years ago, yet still remain incarcerated. And Guantanamo Bay is also the most expensive prison on earth, costing taxpayers $800,000 per inmate per year for the total of more than $130 million per year in detention of the 166 current uh, prisoners. Um, We are just going to go now to a clip from Politico hearing what the president has to say about Guantanamo, and then we'll hear from our panelists, Tom Hayden, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Gerald Horn. Of course, this is your host, Margaret Prescott. Let's go to that clip right now. It is not a surprise to me that we've got problems in Guantanamo, which is why when I was campaigning in 2007 and 2008, uh, and when I was elected uh, in 2008, I said we need to close Guantanamo. I continue to believe that we've got to close Guantanamo. Uh, I think, well, uh, you know, I, I think it is critical for us to understand that Guantanamo is not necessary to keep America safe. It is expensive. It is inefficient. It hurts us in terms of our international standing. It lessens cooperation with our allies on counterterrorism efforts. It is a recruitment tool for extremists, it needs to be closed. Now, uh, Congress uh, determined that they would not let us close it. Uh, And despite the fact that there are a number of the folks uh, who are currently in Guantanamo who the courts have said uh, could be returned uh, to their country of origin or uh, potentially a third country, um, I'm going to go back at this. Uh, I've asked my team to review everything that's currently being done in Guantanamo, everything that we can do administratively, and I'm going to re-engage with Congress uh, to try to make the case that this is not uh, something that's in the best interest of the American people. I I don't want these individuals to die. Uh, Obviously, the Pentagon uh, is is trying to manage the situation as best as they can. Uh, But I think all of us should reflect on why exactly are we doing this? Why are we doing this? And, and, and I understand that in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 with the traumas that had taken place, why for a lot of Americans the notion was somehow that, uh, that we had to create a special facility like Guantanamo and we couldn't uh, handle this in, in a normal conventional fashion. I understand that reaction. but. Uh, We're now over a decade out. We should be wiser. We should have more experience uh, in how we prosecute terrorists. And this is a lingering problem that uh, is not going to get better. It's going to get worse. It's going to fester. And so I'm going to, as I said before, examine every option that we have administratively to try to deal with this issue. 
All righty, there you go, Tom Hayden, the president, uh, speaking um, somewhat passionately about uh, Guantanamo. Um, he had ordered, signed an executive order in 2009, January, to shut down the detention camp. Still, it has not happened. And Tom, it really seemed as though the hunger strikers um, learned something about the Irish, because wasn't it an Irish struggle that the whole issue of uh, the tactic of hunger strike being effective um, sometime in the last century came about. So, Tom Hayden, it does seem as though the hunger strikers are having some impact. And what happened? I mean, why hasn't the president closed Guantanamo? Why has these 86 who have been cleared not been released? Tom Hayden. Well, there's a lot of confusion about this. Um, the hunger strikers uh, didn't have to learn from the Irish, but the uh, Irish case is, is uh, instructive uh, uh, the Irish people voted for a dying hunger striker, Bobby Sands, to Parliament, and it began the political transformation of the Sinn Féin party when Thatcher um, uh, re refused to deal with uh, the demands of the hunger strikers, and 14 died. Um, so this is a this is a very urgent issue, and I would rather Margaret uh, focus only on the life and death uh, immediate issue at hand. Sure. Uh, which is when you're on hunger strike, uh, 10 days, 30 days, 40, 50, whatever the time limit, uh, you die of organ failure. And um, um, there, there, it's, it can become irreversible. And um, uh, it's quite urgent here that the, uh, the hunger strikers have, yes, they have forced the president to speak out. Um, uh, this, is, uh, this is politically... Uh, uh, very important as well for the human rights community. But um, uh, if he doesn't act uh, urgently, uh, uh, some of them are likely to die, and and that's that that's a uh, a preventable tragedy at this minute. But it's day to day. What he he said that was important to me twice was that he's looking at at what can be done administratively. Uh, well, he can he can tell Chuck Hagel uh, to um, uh, process the release of several of these uh, people in Guantanamo uh, back to Yemen. Uh, uh, he'll be accused of uh, letting terrorists go back on the battlefield, but I think he can handle that. He just has to frame it more. I mean, releasing five people or fifteen people is not going to change the balance of forces on the ground in Yemen. Um, but uh, I think it'll be a signal to the hunger strikers and to their lawyers that uh, they can end the hunger strike with some reason to believe that their cases will be processed. They're, they're, they're dying. Uh, uh, in, 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 they want to take their death into their own hands because they don't want to remain in Guantanamo the rest of their lives when they're charged with nothing, when they're, they're cleared to go, uh, Congress has imposed most of these restraints on Obama, but he does have the administrative ability to begin some releases, and then I think that'll ease the, the terrible crisis and allow us to go, go back to uh, sorting out uh, how how uh, we find, finally get beyond Guantanamo. Yeah, and Jackie Goldberg, uh, to you, that begs the question about 
really what is the president waiting for? I mean, can he really continue to blame Congress for what is going on or at, at this stage of the game? I mean, force feeding of, you know, even when you see it being done to older people um, who perhaps are, you know, towards their, their final days and they're being force fed because they can't eat anymore. It's just horrible and painful. And it is uh, being uh, called torture and it, it is illegal, uh, according to some. So uh, what is, you know, what, what do you think is standing in the way of President Obama acting as along the lines even of what Tom Hayden just outlined? Well, I'm not sure. I know some of it is that, uh, that remember, the Democrats under Harry Reid, <clears throat> the Senate Democrats, uh, cut off $80 million to pay for transfer of detainees. Yeah. Okay. So that, that makes it harder because uh, that's his own party. That's not just the Tea Party. The Tea Party cut it off in the House, but it was Harry Reid who did this. Um, and I think he did this before the, uh, <clears throat> before the election. I don't remember the exact date. I was trying to find it this morning, but I couldn't find it. But, but that being the case, that makes things a lot harder because it does cost money. I think also that uh, the president didn't want to spend any political capital on Guantanamo uh, before the, uh, the national elections. But that's, that, that's gone. That's no longer an excuse any longer. And, you know, I just read one of the articles this morning that said that the medical personnel have to work around the clock in order to force-feed these folks. And this is, this is considered torture. It, it is illegal under international law, at least. That's what the U.N. folks just said recently uh, in a statement. Four of the Human Rights Commissioners came out with a statement saying that uh, this is illegal to force-feed, that the medical ethics require that you uh, honor the, the, uh, the uh, requests of, of uh, individuals uh, to not eat if that is their choice. Um, so, so there's a lot of pressure now to stop the force feeding, but there's also pressure to continue it by, I'm sure, people in the Obama administration because they don't want the, the political fallout of people dying. So this is a very terrible time, and I do agree with Tom. This is a time for the president to say, I'm going to take some risks and move as many people as I can. Also remember, there's a prison <coughs> in Illinois uh, a maximum security empty prison in Illinois where the Illinois Republicans as well as the Democrats want the transfer of prisoners from Guantanamo there, but the Congress and Tea Party leading it has decided not to allow any prisoners from Guantanamo to be housed on the, quote, continental United States. Now, that's in spite of the fact that we've housed uh, terrorists uh, from from uh, the uh, World Trade Center uh, attacks uh, prior to the the 2000, uh, you know, <clears throat> prior to to uh, 2000. Um, <clears throat> I'm, boy, I'm tongue tied here. Prior to the current ones, prior to to 9/11. So we've we've done this. There's no good reason to do it. This is all politics, and it is politics of the worst sort because it involves people's lives. Also, by the way, it's against international law to hold people without charges indefinitely. So we are violating international law at the time when we are trying to say that we are behaving differently than we did under the Bush administration. Yes, and uh, Dr. Gerald Horn, the largest single group 
of cleared detainees, um, the Christian Science Monitor is reporting, are citizens of Yemen. And we know that people in Yemen have been out on the streets uh, protesting. Uh, One testified before the Senate saying that because of the drone strikes, because of Guantanamo, uh, people in the region increasingly hate uh, the United States and the Obama administration has had released 72 detainees. So we we know that this, of course, he is reacting to the hunger strike itself and, and just the danger of people's lives and what Tom outlined. But there's also a key element in terms of what's going on in the Middle East and North Africa in terms of how the the, the president, what the president said recently, Dr. Gerald Horn. Well, you've hit the nail on the head. There's tremendous international pressure with regard to Guantanamo, not least from the Cubans themselves, since Guantanamo sits illegally on Cuban soil. The Cubans are very upset that they're still on the so-called terror list uh, handled by Washington. They're upset by the fact that in the U.S. Treasury Department, there are more bureaucrats focused on travel to Cuba than focused on so-called terrorism. They're also upset about the latest slap in the face, which is the FBI putting black American freedom fighter Asada Shakur on their most wanted list at the top of the list. Part of the problem, as your question suggests, is that there is a basic contradiction with regard to the U.S. policy towards fighting so-called terrorism. That is to say, the United States may be fighting this force on the Afghan-Pakistan border, but they're backing so-called terrorist forces by their own admission in Syria, and most recently, I would say, in in Dagestan. uh, Their allies, particularly the Saudis and the Qataris, support Salafists and Wahhabist forces who form the bedrock of the so-called terrorist movement. And the latest target is Western China abutting Afghanistan, uh, where there's a Muslim minority, and there has been an upsurge of militancy where one can easily detect the hand of Washington. Then there's the European debt crisis with Britain and France being increasingly dependent on capital from the Gulf Arabs, and which helps to underscore their hawkish behavior in Syria, particularly uh, backing the Al Nusra Front uh, in a de facto way, which even Washington has called upon, uh, has designated as a terrorist force. But when you mention southern Yemen, you mentioned basically the fundamental problem with the so-called war on terrorism. That is to say, in the 1980s, uh, southern Yemen was a hotbed of socialists. But because of U.S. policy, they were driven uh, out of policy and into the ideological desert. And now southern Yemen is perceived to be a hotbed for so-called terrorism. Uh, you can say the same thing for Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, <coughs> Chechnya, etc. So it seems that not only do we need to focus on closing Guantanamo, but closing the policy that squashes socialists and then either creates hysteria about so-called terrorism or so-called terrorists themselves. Right. On that note, thank you, Dr. Horn. We are going to uh, take our station break. And when we return, the President Obama and controversy about his cabinet nominees and also the unfilled positions um, in his administration. We'll be right back. This is Ed Asner. You're listening to Fearless Drive Time Radio, Sojourner Truth with host Margaret Prescott. A tornado flew around my room before you came. Excuse the mess it made. It usually doesn't rain in Southern California, much like Arizona. My eyes don't shed tears, but body but when I'm thinking about you, who no no no. I've been thinking about you, you no no no. I've been thinking about you. 
And thinking about you, the artist is Frank Ocean. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. It is our weekly roundtable with our panelists, Jackie Goldberg, Tom Hayden, Dr. Gerald Horn. If you've missed any part of this hour, uh, by the way, if you get a, a subscribe for a free podcast of the show, you could listen to it anytime, 24-7, um, that on in the car and, and more. So I would suggest that. It, also, you can go to our website at SoTrueRadio.com. O-R-G. And you could also get it on the KPFK website. President Obama announced yesterday two more nominees to his cabinet. Businesswoman Penny Pritzker was named by the president as his choice of as Commerce Secretary, while current National Security Advisor for International Economic Affairs, John Froman, was put up for the job of U.S. Trade Representative. On Monday, former Mayor of Charlotte, North Carolina, was nominated for Transportation Secretary. Both Pritzker and Froman are longtime Obama allies. Uh, Pritzker, who ranks as one of the nation's wealthiest women with a personal fortune of $1.85 billion, that is Hyatt uh, Hotel money, was an early supporter of the president during his 2008 campaign. In 2012, she personally donated more than $100,000 towards his re-election. She's also a former executive at City... Froman is a former executive at Citigroup, went to law school with the president and was the editor of the prestigious Harvard Law Review, as was the president. If the nominees are confirmed, they will likely be stepping into organizations that are chronically understaffed at upper levels. 30% of the top jobs at commerce are vacant, while senior posts at the state, defense, treasury departments also remain unfilled. The White House has blamed the staffing delays on the partisan environment in the House and Senate, where nominees like Thomas Perez, the president's choice to replace Hilda Solis as labor secretary, undergoing grueling questions and answer sessions with hostile GOP legislators. The Congress, however, blames the Obama administration's scrupulous vetting process as the reason for so many positions remaining vacant. So, Tom Hayden, um, what do you think is going on here? I mean, a lot of, of, of criticism, of course, with the, in particular of, of uh, Penny uh, Pritzker and also uh, John Furman, um, seen as an, an insider coming out of Citigroup on the one hand. And on the other hand, um, it's news itself how many vacancies remain in the executive branch, Tom Hayden. Well, I'm sitting here in uh, Arizona, the focal point of our current contradictions. <laughs> and uh, I think that this uh, Tom Perez, the uh, successor to Hilda Solis at the uh, Labor Department, is, is very good, better than very good. And he's, uh, he's being held up uh, by the Repu- Republicans uh, because he's been so effective on uh, immigrant rights and so on. The other two... Um, Pritzker and Froman, as, as far as I can see from a distance, uh, it's a case of Obama turning to uh, his, his oldest uh, friends. Uh, in Pritzker's case, uh, you know, his number number one source of uh, campaign funds uh, that launched his career, and it's uh, you know for the end of his uh, second term, he's uh, he's turning inward to people that. Uh, 
uh, he trusts. I, I think that uh, policy is they're going to be status quo or whatever he wants to do. But uh, it's a it's a uh, it's a, 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 a a closing of the ranks as as the end of uh, his uh, tenure nears. Right, and and Jackie Goldberg, there has been a lot of controversy about uh, the makeup of the uh, cabinet and a breakdown of ten white men, seven white women, two black men, one black woman, one Hispanic man, one Asian man. So he did try to uh, mix it up a bit there. Of course, the uh, black uh, man, one of them is uh, Anthony Fox, um, transportation secretary and currently the mayor of Charlotte, North Carolina. But why? I mean, some people are saying that it's unprecedented to have so many vacancies in the executive branch. So do you think it is one or the other? Do you think it is um, on the, the fault of Congress or of the administration basically taking their time? Jackie well, I Gober. think it's a little of each, but it's mostly Congress. Uh, I mean, the Republicans in the House are very clear. They don't want the government to operate. Well, how can you stop the government from operating when you're only the legislative branch? Well, you have two two tools. One is money. You don't give the government any money to operate. And the other, and so that's what they're trying to do with keeping the sequester in, except if it affects them personally, of course, like the, uh, the air traffic controllers. But except if it affects me personally, say the Republicans in Congress, uh, we're not going to approve anybody. We're not going to approve judges. We're not going to approve anybody else. Um, and we're going to use every hearing as an opportunity to embarrass the administration. Unfortunately, administration sometimes helps uh, that embarrassment by uh, nominating the Pritzker family uh, uh, heir, which is uh, which is Penny, who has a notorious reputation in Chicago being on the school board appointed by Rahm Emanuel and having been very anti-union during her whole stint there. And also, she has an enormous amount of family money uh, that is in offshore uh, tax avoidance schemes that began uh, when she was only four years old. She didn't invent them, but she's certainly done nothing to, to stop them. Um, and so they have a, a really a if you want to read it, Forbes has the best I think article on it. They have a complex series of how they take the assets of all of the things they own and they put it in this. Uh, it, this trust fund offshore, and then that trust fund makes loans back to those same companies uh, to buy more assets, the earnings of which go back to pay off the debt of this, so that there's actually so-called no accumulated income, and so there's no income tax. It's a pretty pretty heavy scheme. Uh, but the point I'm going to make is is that, that what you have is an, a, a really a, a focus attempt by the uh, uh, Republicans, particularly the Tea Party, to just make the government not function. And then when people say, well, gee, why didn't OSHA stop uh, the problems in, uh, in, <clears throat> in, the, in West Texas, Texas in, that, yeah. in that fertilizer plant, well, the chances are being uh, ever inspected is about once every about a thousand years. Well, if that's the case, then it makes it a decision of, of company policy whether or not to risk uh, an explosion like that in order not to have to pay for the things that create more safety on the job. That's all the way through. This is a part and parcel of this whole notion by the Tea Party uh, and supported, unfortunately, by some Democrats that you don't need federal government except for uh, war and peace, and that's about it, and uh, and to give you tax breaks. So I, I think that, uh, that the... Uh, 
appointments that the president has made in some cases embarrass him, like Pritzker. But mostly, I think the problem is with those people who really don't want a government that's working. Yeah, and uh, Dr. Gerald Horn, I mean, uh, John Kerry, Secretary of State, he seemed to have relatively smooth sailing going through. But Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel, there were issues with somewhat issues around the the CIA director. But uh, your views about these vacancies and, and what's going on and what Congress is up to? Well, the Republican Party in Congress has decided to go on strike, and they've decided to go on strike in part because they feel or fear that if they do not exhibit adamant opposition to whatever Obama is for, they'll be subjected to a primary challenge and will lose their job. They're looking over their shoulders at the record uh, percentage-wise white turnout for Mitt Romney in November 2012, even though I should add quickly that for the first time, the black turnout was the highest amongst any group in the United States, which is something we all need to ponder. And this has led not only to the positions you've mentioned going unfilled, it's led to the National Labor Relations Board basically becoming a dead letter. It's led to a situation whereby uh, federal courts in Washington have suggested that the administration can no longer make recess appointments, which is a first in U.S. history. And basically, on the political level, you've had a retreat from what the latest story in Arthur Schlesinger Jr. referred to as an imperial presidency, that is to say, with the president accumulating even greater powers. When you have your first black president, supposedly, surprisingly enough, they begin to strip away the powers of the imperial presidency, thanks to the Republicans. And that has led to another narrative, which is that you don't blame the Republican Party for their stubbornness. That is to say, with regard to the failure of gun control legislation, (laughs) instead of blaming the NRA and their backers, you have this new narrative erupting that says that Obama is not sufficiently adept at twisting arms, and that's why the bill did not pass. And that's part of this larger narrative about Suppose, uh, which, which leads to these false equivalencies that are becoming popular in U.S. culture. Yeah. You know about Brad Paisley, the country singer, uh, equating uh, chains on a slave with chains on a rapper's neck. And so it seems to me that <laughs> until we uh, right. confront the, the, these kinds of contradictions, we're going to be faced with a paralyzed government that only is involved, as Jackie Goldberg says, in giving tax breaks to the wealthy. Right. Well, on that note, uh, Dr. Gerald Horn, Tom Hayden, Jackie Goldberg, another fascinating uh, roundtable. You are all very much loved by our listeners. Thank you so very much for joining us. Always nice to be with you. All righty. Today's show produced by Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank the Sojourner Truth uh, team, our engineer, uh, Mr. T, Teddy Robinson, Michelle Lavner. Teresa McGee, Azim Khan, our researchers and assistant producer, Kevin Walker. If you'd like a copy of today's show, contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to PacificaRadioArchives.org. Remember to friend and like us on Facebook. I hope you get to do something really nice this weekend. Sojourner Truth will be back on the air on Tuesday morning. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Thank you for listening.